I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. This is the Anxiety Bites podcast, and I am your host, Jen Kirkman. Today, my guest is PhD neuroscientist, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. Now, when I was posting about this podcast, Anxiety Bites, the podcast in general, before it premiered, I was saying, you know, I'm hosting this new podcast and you know, what I want to bring to the table with my background in comedy is, is maybe the conversations are irreverent, maybe sometimes funny, you know, which is bring a sense of levity to the notion of anxiety. And I'll be interviewing all kinds of people. And I mentioned that I would be interviewing neuroscientists. And of course, somebody wrote, well, it's, that's going to be hard to make this podcast funny. And neuroscientists aren't funny. Uh, excuse me, commenter on the internet whose name I don't remember, but it's still stuck with me their comment months later. Within the first five minutes of this interview, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett and I are making jokes about sexual arousal. She's extremely funny. And her latest book is known as the first neuroscience beach read, seven and a half lessons about the brain. 
is the title of her latest book. So it's a lot of fun talking to Dr. Feldman Barrett. Now, just so that you know who we're dealing with, okay? She is among the top 1% most cited scientists in the world for her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. She is a university distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University. She also holds appointments at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital, where she is chief science officer for the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior. She's also given a very popular TED Talk that has over 6 million views. Now, all of this will be in the show notes. Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett's book that came out before Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain is called How Emotions Are Made. But in this interview, we do focus mainly on a lot of the concepts from her most recent book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And while that book isn't about anxiety per se, it answered so many questions about the brain that people often, you know, answered so many questions about the brain, but put to rest so many myths. That, that people often bring up about the brain in regards to anxiety. You know, I'm sure you've heard people say that anxiety is your emotions, it's your lizard brain. Well, that's not true. And the notion that we don't have this lizard brain and that the brain is not three parts has been proven to not be true for decades, but people are still quoting disproven things. It's as Dr. Feldman Barrett says, it's like if the flat earth theory was still being taken seriously. I talked to her about why this happens, why people are not, you know, talking about what's in her book. I mean, not that they're not. That's, I wasn't saying. Why, how come your book isn't popular? It's huge. That's not what I mean. But why aren't the other theories being put to rest? And she also takes us on a step-by-step of what to do during an onset of anxiety so that it doesn't turn into a full-blown panic attack. And she explains exactly what our brain is doing in those moments. And no, it has nothing to do with the brain thinking it's running away from a woolly mammoth. She helps us learn what to do so that our anxious feelings become uncomfortable feelings. That's right. The hope I offer you on this podcast is that One day you'll just be uncomfortable instead of so anxious. Anyway, I learned so much from reading her books and obviously even more from chatting with her. And I hope you get as much out of my conversation with Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett as I did. Enjoy. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Barrett. I, you know, I'm reading and I read your new book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And I know uh, your book before that was How Emotions Are Made. And I think this interview will concentrate mostly on the book Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Um, Of course, we can talk about anything. But what I found so interesting about this book, because this podcast is about anxiety, and and I will direct every conversation back to anxiety. But something about this book, even though it's not your typical, hey, here's how you deal with anxiety, I think this is one of the best books that someone with anxiety could read that dismantles what a lot of other books are saying about the brain. Yes, exactly. I'm so, I'm, you just made my week. I mean, because, um, the idea behind this book was to make a, you know, a little book of essays that would go down easy, that would, you know, maybe have a tidbit of neuroscience that you could impress your friends with at a dinner party or something. 
there are a couple of jokes. I'm not actually the funny one in my family. So, you know, I'm like the least funny of the, of all of us, but you know, there are a couple of little zingers in there that I'm very proud of that even now when I read them, I still, it's not polite to laugh at your own jokes, but I do actually laugh. Oh, listen, I'm a comedian and you're allowed to. And I laughed so much throughout this book. Thank you. That means a lot. (laughs) But the goal was to really invite people to think about human nature in a little bit of a different way and Mm -hmm. to think about the kind of human you are or want to be and to reevaluate maybe or reconsider some of the truths about yourself and your life that you hold really dear. Because even though the essays read quickly, the ideas linger for a while. And I think that anxiety is one of the most misunderstood. It's probably right up there with depression. Anxiety and depression mm-hmm. are very, very misunderstood phenomena, I think. Um, and I'm really glad to hear that you um, found something helpful. What did it help you understand differently about about anxiety in particular? Well, you know, for me, and, and everyone's different, but I've been dealing with anxiety and, and obsessed with, you know, I had anxiety since I was eight. I'm 46. It's been a long journey for me. And I enjoy uh, the notion that I'm not special, the notion that there is a reason for this, and the notion that you know, this is just how the brain works. It's doing its thing. And it really isn't this big emotional deal in a way. That was new to me, the the kind of, like what you said, um, I wrote this down. Uh, I made a note on page 76. And to me, this was the most important thing. Whether I knew it somewhere deep inside me or not, I just, I circled. <laughs> Brains aren't wired for accuracy. They're wired to keep us alive. When your predicting brain is right, it creates your reality. When it's wrong, it still creates your reality. So that to me is like what everyone with anxiety needs to understand, that we are creating our own reality when we are getting anxious because we're usually not anxious about actual threats. That's true. And I would actually even go further and say that, and I'm speaking as someone who also has dealt with anxiety her whole life and whose daughter has social anxiety. You know, like the anxiety is rampant in our culture. It's really a lot up there with depression, I think, as a kind of a, an emergency. <laughs> yeah. But actually, when you start to think about anxiety from the perspective of what is a brain and why do we even have brains, like brains are really expensive organs. They're, you know, that three pound blob of meat between your ears is the most expensive organ that you have. It costs give or take, you know, 20% of your metabolic budget. That's more than your heart. That's more than your lungs. That's more than any of your muscles. Mm. Um, you know, um, and so, I mean, individually <laughs> more than your muscles. Yeah. So what's it for? And the answer is it's, you know, there isn't one answer really, but one important thing that your brain is for is regulating the systems of your body. And so everything that you feel, everything that you do, every you know, as I say in the book, you know, every hug you give, every insult you bear, every insult you give, <laughs> you know, is um, related actually to intimately to the state of your own body. And so when you understand this, you start to look at anxiety a little bit differently, or at least I do. And I was giving an interview to um, uh David Shariamandri at the um Guardian, and I was ex- I was describing to him 
this experience that I had right before the COVID pandemic took hold. Um, and it, and it will illustrate to you what I mean by this about mm -hmm. you, you start to look at your own anxiety differently and maybe even deconstruct it or dissolve it into its more basic parts, which then makes it much more manageable to deal with. So um, I was describing to him the situation where I was in New Zealand and um, because every spring break, I would accept speaking engagements at universities or for my books so that I could go somewhere nice with my daughter and take her with me on holiday for her spring break. And so I was in New Zealand having done book fairs and this and that. Talk, you know, I got a, I was very honored by a, you know, honorary degree at a university and so on. And I'm sitting in New Zealand waiting. She's in the air now, right? In the yeah. air flying. It's a very long flight. And I'm reading and listening to all of this stuff erupting around the world about, about the COVID um, virus. And I felt this increase in arousal that was very unpleasant. And if I was anybody other than me, I would have been anxious. I would have been anxious and the way yeah. my brain would have made sense of that arousal would have dictated what I did next, what I felt next, and would have constructed in the blink of an eye anxiety and, you know, um, all sorts of um, things would issue from that. Instead, though, the way I interpreted it was, okay, I'm having trouble predicting what's going to happen next. Yeah. And whenever I'm having trouble, whenever your brain has trouble predicting, there's an increase in arousal because your brain secretes chemicals that helps it attempt to learn something in the moment to help right. it predict better later. But that arousal can feel like shit. Yep. But instead of anxiety, I felt high arousal that was unpleasant. And so, you know, I got my sister-in-law on the phone and I said, I'm feeling very, you know, high arousal, I'm unpleasant high arousal. And I, um, because I don't know what to do. Yeah. Should I meet her at the airport and we should turn around and go home? Or should I, you know, because it was, this was, we were still a few days out before the official. Uh, yeah. By the way, I just, as a comedian, have to interrupt and say, I do love that your family knows you so well that you can call same experiencing arousal. And they know this isn't a creepy phone call. That, yeah, exactly. That you mean, you yeah, mean anxiety. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Arousal in our world doesn't mean sexual arousal. It means like, you know, you feel jittery and like your mind is like flitting around and you're right. But but I think the thing to understand is that the way that your brain works is metabolically efficient and that's tied directly to your health for the rest of your life. Yeah. A metabolically efficient thing to do is for your brain to predict what's going to happen next based on past experience. And if your brain can't predict well, for whatever reason, there are lots of reasons why a brain can't predict well. If there's a lot of uncertainty or ambiguity, there's an increase in arousal, which you often feel directly as feeling worked up, feeling jittery, feeling like you can't concentrate. And yeah. the, the go-to way that your brain makes sense of that is anxiety. And that dictates your actions and yeah. also what you feel next. However, if you learn to make sense of those sensations differently, you will act differently. And then it becomes maybe an uncomfortable state, but it's not anxiety. And I have to tell you, Jen, this is not like bullshit, you know, Jedi mind games here. This is real. Well, I mean, Jedis aren't bullshit. No offense to any Star Wars fans. <laughs> Please, we can't lose them. This is not like psychological mumbo jumbo. 
you know, your brain is always guessing at what sensations mean. And yeah. when you learn to guess differently, you are architecting your life that so that you will act differently and experience things differently, sometimes with very profound effects. We'll be right back. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts, it's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation. I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, 
further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready. You know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. This brings me, what you just said, brings me to the most mind-blowing part of your book that made me literally want to run in the streets screaming, why isn't anyone listening to this? I can go on a tangent with you in a minute about the sexism of it all, because I think there's some sexism here. But what you just said is when we are feeling those feelings of arousal, you know, the beginning of what could be for some of us a panic attack, what I was taught as a young 20-something, and I've still been taught it to this day, is that when that's happening, my body is just having some crazy reaction because I used to be a caveman and all these chemicals and my limbic brain and my lizard brain And, you know, I never found that to be of comfort because what I used to say is, so you're telling me my brain hasn't evolved at all and that I'm just this victim of this limbic, this lizard. I don't like that at all. How the hell am I going to overcome this? So the way you just described it is actually what's happening in that moment is not a helpless victim situation. Your body's actually doing something in that moment to help you. It just needs a minute, but we don't have a minute when we're waiting for our feelings to show up. So it's, it's, it's scrambling to make sense of these feelings, attach a story to it so we know if what we're feeling is whatever. And by that time, if we're not practiced like you, um, we're adding our own thoughts into it. Now it's just a jumble. Um, You know, we're telling ourselves a story while our brain is trying to make a story. I'm putting it very not scientifically, but basically what I ended up having to do to work on my anxiety is eventually get to where you started in your story, which is you know, talk to myself during it to calm myself down. But the original thing posited to me was because lizard brain caveman limbic, blah, blah. And reading your book, that that is all bullshit, that we don't have three parts of our brain and that this is all back from like men who worshiped Plato. Can you talk to me about, I'm going to give you your quote, Bad behavior doesn't come from ancient and unbridled inner beasts. Good behavior is not the result of rationality. Rationality and emotion are not at war. They do not even live in separate parts of the brain. The three-layered brain was proposed by several scientists over the years. Um, Paul McLean concluded that mammal brains had a collection of parts that reptile brains didn't, which he called the limbic system. And now the human origin story is born. Please dissect that. Dismantle it for me. Sure. So this idea that we have this ancient lizard brain and then layered on top of that is this newer mammalian part called a limbic system where limbic means um, border. That is the tissue that borders, you know, your lizard brain. And then on top of that evolved um, your, you know, big neocortex, which is where rationality lives. And this idea um, has been around really since the beginning, I would say, of modern neuroscience in some ways. And when was that for for people who don't know? 1800s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And actually, I have a whole section in um, How Emotions Are Made where I dissect this history of like, how did people come to take this, an idea really that you can trace all the way back to Plato 
and tattoo it onto the brain and then make that, you know, um, the origin story of human nature. Right. And I, and if you go back to the Plato story, it's a really interesting story where he's he's in a number of places, you know, he talks about the human psyche, which isn't exactly the same as the modern human mind, but for present purposes, we'll just use them equivalently. No, the human mind can be understood as two horses and a charioteer. One horse is your instincts, um, like, you know, hunger and thirst and sex drive and so on. Um, that, uh, you know, a, a neuroscience joke, ready, is uh, people call it the, the four Fs, feeding, fleeing, fighting, and mating. Uh, excuse me, doctor, mating does not begin with an F. She's, right. She means to say fucking. Exactly. So one horse is, you know, instincts. One horse represents emotions. And then yeah. there's the charioteer who's controlling the two beasts, right? The human yeah. controlling the two beasts. This is actually a morality tale in Plato's hands. You know, this is a story of human morality that you've got these inner urges that have to be controlled by your rational self. Yeah. And in modern times, we say, you know, when your rationality controls your, your inner beast, you are mentally healthy and you're a moral person. When your inner beast gets the better of you, you are either immoral because you didn't try hard enough to control yourself or you're sick because you can't control yourself. I mean, that's basically mm. the, um, the narrative that you find embedded in a lot of modern writing. Um, uh, scientific and popular writing about, um, right, that your mind and therefore your brain is a battleground between your inner beast and your more rational self. The problem with this narrative is that it, it completely, the science doesn't, doesn't at all back it up. That this reminds me of like the flat earth of neuroscience. I mean, and the fact <laughs> it that it, it is the fact that it hasn't been laughed out of society is, is frightening. Yeah. It's so funny that you say that because the flat earth myth is something I talk about in how emotions are made. Oh, that must be where I got, okay. I read yeah. that book too. It must be in my brain. I, I, I lifted from you in front of you, but, but yeah. But the myth of the sort of the battleground in your brain yeah. is, is really pervasive. And I think the, the important thing to understand is that what you feel is not in your body. It's actually in your brain. You see okay. with your brain, you yeah. hear with your brain, you smell with your brain. If you take your pulse, you actually feel that pulse in your brain. Your brain is modeling your body in the world. Well, wait, one sec. That could be very helpful. I'm going to mark that for my listeners where, again, this is even until recently, if I'm having an anxiety attack, I look at it as a battle between my body and my brain, right? I will think, now my body is having a rapid heart rate and it's having a this and a that because, you know, for me, if I'm having a, a panic attack these days, I always say that it's usually from very physical reasons. I didn't sleep enough, too much coffee, bloody blah, blah. So I'll start to do that and I'll start to see my body and brain as two different things. And I might do a cognitive exercise like you did in New Zealand or on the way to New Zealand. But from now on, I will stop thinking of it as body versus brain. It is... That's right. My body can't feel a damn thing or smell a damn thing if I'm brain dead. And so maybe this helps our listeners who 
you know, I, I do want to go back to it in a second. I do think some people might not want to let go of the limbic lizard brain. It's fun and easy for them, but I want to empower people to say, um, you're not a victim of your own body. This isn't um, something you have to fight against. You just have to know more about it. So, so I'm so sorry to interrupt. Continue what you were saying that you can't, you smell with your brain, you, you taste with your brain. Oh, please feel free to interrupt. If, if not, <laughs> I'll probably just natter on. <laughs> but I think it's really important that you have to understand that what your, your brain is modeling your body to control your body. So hopefully your brain is accurate right? So your brain makes predictions about what's happening in your body. It actually prepares. So for example, if we were to hold time still, we just stopped time and we look into your brain, your brain is representing what it believes to be occurring in your body and in your brain. And I mean, and in the world, and based on that, it makes a set of predictions about what to do next. Mm -hmm. So it starts to prepare the signals to change your body so that you can do something that will be beneficial. And what you experience are the consequences of those motor and what we call visceromotor, that is the changing of the internal state of the body. Those motor signals actually give rise to what are called sensory predictions. So your brain asks itself figuratively, the last time I was in this physical state and I was about to change my body in this way, what did I see? What did I hear? What did I feel? And then it starts to construct those experiences to prepare for the sense data coming from the body and from the world that it's expecting. When you're battling, you're anxious. When you're cooperating, you're less anxious. Yes. And I, I want to say two things about this. I'll say the first the first thing will follow up directly on what you said. And then I want to say this other thing about why does it matter that we understand how these things work? The first things that, to your point, if your brain constructs anxiety, that is, it makes sense of, of this high arousal state, unpleasant state as anxiety, and it leads you to act in certain ways as opposed to other ways. And so that prolongs the um, arousal and so on. You suffer. Like you, yeah. you, you experience suffering, but you know, there is a difference between suffering and discomfort. I agree. Can I say one quick thing that people know that I talk about anxiety and that I having this podcast come out and I will get emails from people saying I suffer from anxiety and I don't want to sound woo woo, but I always say, if you keep saying you're suffering you will be suffering. You have anxiety. Anxiety is your friend. Anxiety shows up. You're a human. But the more people keep with the dramatic narrative, I'm suffering. Yeah. You're not, you're uncomfortable. It sucks. It's scary. If you don't know what the hell is going on, it can feel like suffering, but you're not actually suffering. And I, I feel like I want that to be good news for people, but we like to hold on to our story. So I know right now some people are you know, turning the channel, as I say, and going, no, she doesn't get it. But I agree. It, it's yeah. not suffering. Yeah. So let me just say that yeah. I don't doubt for a minute that people, when they experience anxiety, crippling anxiety, that they suffer, they do suffer. The point is that, I mean, we all, everyone has had this experience um, at least once. And, um, but what I, and for some people much longer, but what I'm trying to say is that the suffering isn't, obligatory hmm. and that you have more control than you think you do. 
And when I say that you have more control than you think you do, I'm not saying that you are therefore responsible for your anxiety and suffering. I'm not saying you're culpable in some like cosmic way. I am saying that you have more control than you think you do. And you have maybe a little bit more responsibility for your feelings than you think you do. Not because you're to blame for them, but because you're the only one who can change them. This is a point yes. that I made, you know, when I, in my TED talk that I think people really resonated to that yep. you know, you're responsible sometimes for yourself and for the horrible, like, you know, if something horrible happens to you, you're not to blame for that. And you're also not to blame for all the shit that comes from it, Yeah, but you're the only one who can change it. And that means you are in an unfortunate way, kind of responsible. And that may feel to you like you're being victimized twice and you are maybe. But yeah, what other option do you have? You There isn't one. And so I think understanding that you can dissolve the suffering, you might not be able to get rid of the discomfort, mm -hmm. but you can dissolve the suffering into discomfort. That's actually a really powerful set of uh, abilities that you should cherish, practice and cherish, because you know yep. what? When we exercise every day, we're uncomfortable, but we yeah. think of that effort as like an investment in a healthier brain and body and a healthier you in the future. And the same thing is true. Um, anxiety is not your friend, but arousal is there for a reason. It's uncomfortable mm. and it might feel like shit, but it's there for a reason. And it's there actually, you know, in part because your brain believes something is important enough to learn or that you have to do something really hard. And so even if it's uncomfortable, and I also want to say that, you know, for example, research shows that in chronic pain, if you learn to deconstruct that chronic pain into um, discomfort, you can not only reduce your own suffering, experience of suffering, but you can like reduce your dependence on opioids, for example. Yeah. And I'm, you know, right now we're talking and, uh, you know, I am three months out from major back surgery. Like I had a open back surgery, a spinal fusion at three levels. Oof. So I'm talking to you as a scientist. I'm talking to you as someone whose sister-in-law suffers from terrible chronic pain, fibromyalgia, and she uses how emotions are made actually as a little manual for her with her patients. Um, I'm talking to you as someone who just had major back surgery. Yeah. And um, there's a guy named Eric Garland who's done a lot of research on meditation and other ways of learning to dissolve suffering into discomfort and the consequences for opioid use, for example. So, yeah. and I could go on and on and on about this. I mean, there's an analogy I would say that a lot of people find really helpful a while back, I was really interested to learn to paint, you know? Yeah. And so I took some lessons from a painter and, and, and she explained to me, so I'm going to hold up a glass now. I'm holding up a glass full of water. Okay. She explained to me that if you try to take this glass and it's a three-dimensional object and you want to render it on a two-dimensional canvas, you could just look at the object and then try to draw it on the canvas and you'll end up getting a pretty shitty looking drawing. Yeah. Or what you can do is do what classical painters do, which is they take the object and they deconstruct it into pieces of light. Huh. 
Yeah. So you deconstruct this into, you have to learn to kind of undo what your brain does naturally, right? Your brain has to sort of teach itself to see differently. Yeah. So you can see, I don't know about you, but I can see like, even though it's a clear glass. Yeah. I see blues and black and gray and there's actually some yellow, like right there. Yeah. Light yellow. And then you paint the pieces of light on the canvas and you get a pretty decent rendering of a three-dimensional object on a two-dimensional canvas, unless you're me. Yeah, well, or me too. Anxiety Bites will be right back after a quick little message from one of our sponsors. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. 
Hey, my name is Jay Shetty and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, most people I know who do not want to go to therapy, who do not want to work on their anxiety, they know somewhere because, you know, it's just in our culture, right? That everything comes from somewhere. But at the end of the day, like if you find out, okay, maybe I'm anxious because my parents were anxious and I learned this from them or whatever, it it, like going back in time doesn't really solve what you have to do anyway, which is just learn skills you've never learned. Like we talked about all the way to the beginning of this conversation. And so in that way, I feel like people are afraid to dive deep because they're like, well, it's not my fault I have anxiety. It's not my fault I was born during a climate crisis. It's not my fault, blah, blah. And it's like, no, it's not. But are we only taking care of ourselves when it's our fault? I mean, what you're pointing to is the difference between culpability and responsibility. Yeah. Like you can be responsible for something that you're not culpable for, meaning you're not to blame. Yeah. You are responsible for for dealing with it. I mean, I didn't learn some... I I'd say I'd probably got some rusty tools handed down to me from my parents on dealing with anxiety or even just knowing what anxiety was. So I had to get my own tools. But the way I look at it is great. I also had to get my own apartment. I had to get my own clothes. Like I'm not so walking around in the clothes that I wore as a toddler going, it was my fault I grew, you know, like, well, okay, but now you have to dress, you know, and it, and that can actually be fun. You can actually differentiate yourself from where you came and it can be really empowering, which helps reduce anxiety in my humble opinion. For sure. I mean, I will say that you aren't born knowing to construct anxiety out of, out of arousal. You learned that. So this culture is, you know, the cultural practices that we have in some ways are the perfect recipe we're creating anxiety disorders and depression, actually. Yeah. There's so much uncertainty yeah. in, in so many domains. And the go-to meaning that everybody makes is anxiety. And that dictates your actions. And it dictates like physically what happens next. Yeah. But that isn't the only explanation. That isn't the only narrative that's available. And you can deconstruct that anxiety into unpleasant arousal and have a completely different trajectory for what happens next. Oh, I love that. Which is why it's important to understand how your brain is constructing emotions. How is it constructing anxiety? So the techniques of like deep breathing and yoga and like, you know, all these things are, you know, reappraisal as it's called, or like, you know, reconceptualizing, making sense of things in a different way. All these um, strategies work, but they don't work for the reasons that all the 
you know, self-help books say, why is that important? It's important because in one situation, they might not work or they might stop working. Yeah. And then if you understand the principle, you can figure out other strategies that you didn't read about that follow that principle of brain function. But if you are just following other people's recommendations and you don't understand how it works under the hood, then um, you're stuck when those strategies stop working for you, which they will in certain circumstances. Not, it's not, you know, reconceptualizing, you know, trying to make sense of things differently doesn't always work as a strategy. And so you need to have a tool you know, a toolbox that's filled with other tools, or you might even need to make your own tools on the fly. Yeah. You know, and that's really what seven and a half lessons and the longer, you know, and, and how emotions are made, which is a much longer book. Yeah. Uh, is really designed to, to sort of impart. Well, I, and I love that because too, yeah, I, I have so many people say to me, you know, um, I've tried everything for anxiety, nothing works. And it's like, God, you know, I wonder what they're doing. And it's, it's like you said, they're probably, it's probably not the right tools for them, you know, or even the right way of understanding what's going on under the hood. Yeah. I would say also that, you know, those, like the list of tools is, is not a um, recipe. It's like a tasting menu. Like you've got to figure out what works for you and what doesn't in certain situations. Also, what does it mean to have something work? Exactly. It doesn't (laughs) mean that, you know, that the arousal goes away. It doesn't necessarily mean that your discomfort goes away. And also, it's not like flipping on and off a light switch. You have to think of it in terms of a trajectory, which means you're nudging yourself, nudging yourself in a particular direction. You know, every new experience that we cultivate for ourselves in the moment with effort, you know, it's like an investment in a, in a different future, right? Yeah. But every new experience we have, every new experience the brain makes, the brain learns to make it again in the future. And the more you practice it, the more this experience or the skill, the better you get at it, the more automatic you'll get at it, like driving kind of. So in a sense, what you're doing every moment of your life, you're really, in a sense, cultivating your past that will determine who you will be in the future. And by past, you mean that moment you're driving will be the past someday when you're, when your brain's predicting next week. Yeah. If you with a tremendous effort and maybe even great, um, you know, sense of disbelief, attempt to deconstruct your anxiety into unpleasant arousal. It's really hard to do the first time you do it. And it's hard to do the second time you do it. And yeah. it's probably hard the 30th time you do it. And even after it gets automatic, it might be hard to do it occasionally, but it, it's hard to do. But the thing is that, that every time you do it, you're training, your brain is training itself. Yeah to make meaning differently in the future. So the way that your brain works is it predicts what's going to happen next using your past. So every experience you have, everything that you do in the present is basically like your brain training itself. Yeah. It's like cultivating your past. Yeah. The past of the future that's come. And, you know, yeah. it's, you know, it's like anything. Like, I put a dollar in my savings account. I don't go, wow, you know, I've got no money. It's like, well, in 20 years, that'll be whatever dollars. And, you know, same with working out. You know, it's... It's it's exactly the same. Yeah. Now, okay, so as we're wrapping up, I, I want to go nitty gritty into this and, and 
circle back to this notion of this myth about the brain. So if we don't have a three-part brain with a lizard and a limbic and a caveman, now I'm throwing the caveman in there. You didn't really say that, but I'm throwing it in there. I might be wrong, but it's almost like, is our brain smarter and more functional than these myths give it credit for? And and what is the brain if it's not this three-part thing? Well, yeah, yes, basically, yes. But I would say the way I would think about it is that um, this idea that anything about your body or your brain being, you know, the same as, you know, from cavemen or, you know, from the place, our Pleistocene ancestors, you know, yes. hunter gatherers is, is a bit of an overstatement because genes don't work like that. <laughs> and so, you know, this whole idea that, we have this fixed human nature in the way that our brain is structured and works and the way that our bodies work and that we have nurture this kind of learning, which overlays or modifies this nature is wrong. It's just, it's not even wrong. It's such a profound misunderstanding of how genes work. Mm. Um, you know, we have the kind of nature that requires nurture. We have the kind of genes that require learning in order for your brain to even finish wiring itself after you're ah, born. Okay. Love it. Okay. You know, when you're born, your brain is not a miniature adult brain. It's a brain that is unfinished and it's waiting for wiring instructions mm. from the world and from your own body. And part of that is, you know, your brain wires itself to the distance between your eyes and it wires itself to the shape of your ear. And it wires itself to the amount of sunlight that you get and when you get it um, throughout yeah. the day. And it wires itself in all these physical ways. But it's also wiring itself to the social feedback that you get. For example, how much do your parents talk to you? How much do they mm. make eye contact with you? How much do they use gaze to help you regulate what should you care about in the world and what can you ignore as noise? So for example, if parents don't properly use gaze with their infants, there's not like one way to do it. There are multiple ways, but basically with gaze and with other things that we do, we are teaching our children, our infants, these little developing brains, what do they have to care about in the world and what can they ignore as irrelevant? And if you don't do that, the child's brain will think that everything is potentially relevant. Mm. And that, my friend, is vigilance. Yes. And a lot of people with, you know, chaotic homes or whatever, right? They're super vigilant. They end up being kind of anywhere from like codependent to anxious, right? Well, but remember, if your brain can't predict, if yeah. it thinks every novel thing is potentially important, yeah, and there's going to be a lot of arousal, yeah. and a lot of anxiety. And I will also say very metabolically costly. Like every time you are vigilant when you don't need to be, every time when your brain prepares you for a big metabolic outlay and you don't need it, you pay a tiny little metabolic tax. And those taxes add up over time. Another myth I think that's as big as the myth of the triune brain is the idea that like cortisol is a stress hormone. But cortisol is not a stress hormone. Cortisol is a hormone that your brain directs your adrenal glands to secrete when your brain believes that you have a big metabolic outlay coming. So 
it gets cortisol just gets glucose into your bloodstream really fast. So I love that part of your book where you say if you eat when you're stressed, that adds 104 <laughs> calories to what you're eating. And that's really the myth, the mythology, right? Of the cortisol weight gain thing. It's yeah. not the mythology, but that's the explanation. Yeah, that's one of the explanations. Basically, that's one of that's part of the explanation, I would say. But you know, before you wake up in the morning, you have a cortisol surge because you you're gonna in your brain is predicting, you know, based on past experience that you're about to drag your ass out of bed. Yeah. You need glucose, right? And right before you exercise, and as you exercise, you have a big cortisol surge. Why? Because you need glucose in your right. But that secretion with when you don't actually need it. So your brain is being vigilant and yeah. um, doesn't know whether this novel thing or this ambiguous situation, whether, you know, th this is, um, you know, uh, some kind of like coping response is required or not. It's going to prepare just in case. Yeah. And it's going to attempt to learn just in case that's an expense. And the more you spend when you don't need it, the more, uh, you know, you run, you drive your, your body budget as, as I, that's the metaphor I use and you bet your metabolism, basically you're driving it into this like deficit state. Yeah. And that's a very simplistic metaphor for a very complicated set of processes. But nonetheless, I think it's a useful metaphor. Yeah. Um, to understand what's happening kind of under the hood. Anxiety Bites will be right back after this message. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation. I don't feel like I have to get married yeah. at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. 
and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose, I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready that, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I'll let you go, but I want to end on, um, in your book, you do mention it, um, and I'm sorry, I couldn't quite remember it, but you were saying something about even in the 1960s, um, science knew that there was this was a myth of the three-part brain and the kind of male mythology of, you know, the, all that stuff we talked about. And yet no one's, do you feel like in your community, you know, why is no one saying anything? Why isn't your book that just came out, like, maybe it is, and I don't know it, like ending all these other myths, like why is this still pers- allowed to persist at the same time as the truth? Like you said, the truth has been out there for decades. Yeah. So I think, um, there are a couple of, this is just speculation on my part, right. But a a couple of reasons I think one is that, you know, scientists don't like the F word fact. (laughs) That's scary. (laughs) Oh, cause right. Cause it's, it's always, um, it's evidence and and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Okay. So, you know, and there might be, it might be wrong. And, you know, so we, we concern ourselves with these probabilities and so on, but I would say that the evidence that the trying brain is wrong, and I, I feel at this point, like it's, I'm not going to mince words. It was a metaphor and it's not useful because it's, it actually has, it's incorrect. Yeah. The evidence was sequestered away in a literature that's very, very hard for people to read, even other scientists to read, if you're not an expert. Yeah. So it's in the literature that requires knowledge of um, embryology, for example, and deep knowledge of genetics. And I had to learn, in fact, Barb Finley, who's a, a neuroscientist who I thank, and, you know, she, the book is really dedicated to her and all the other neuroscientists who really trained me to be a neuroscientist. 
after I was already a professor of you know psychology. I mean, she taught me how to read that literature and she still meets with me. I meet with her for two hours every week. She still is sort of mm-hmm. acting like a, a guide for me, um, you know, for certain literatures that I'm just, you know, not familiar with. But I mean, it, it's just, it was sequestered away. Yeah. And it still is to some extent siloed away. So a lot of people don't know about it. Um, and it, there's no, it doesn't have a cheering section. You know, like there are yeah. popular writers, right? Who, who, um, like science writers who popularize what they understand. And when you yeah. look at a brain and you look at these diagrams of brains, it looks like they have three layers. I mean, yeah. using the naked eye, but the naked eye is not always the best. Um, doesn't always give you all the information that you need to understand how something emerges and what its function is. It must be like looking at the earth from the moon where it looks like there's land and there's ocean, but really that's so interconnected. Yeah, well, there's also land under the water, right? Right, yeah. And you can't really see that with the naked eye. So we we really understand that, you know, we, we develop tools as scientists that allow us to see things that we can't see with our naked eye, that we, we can hear things that we can't hear, hear with our ears alone. Um, and, you know, we translate these other signals, which we don't have sensory surfaces for that we have no senses for these other signals and we translate them into signals that we can that we can detect and so molecular genetics you know the evidence from molecular genetics of of how brains might have evolved and the evidence the sort of anatomical evidence that uses that knowledge has been around for a long time but it requires a lot of background knowledge to really read that stuff. And as a consequence, every time, you know, even, even neuroscientists who aren't familiar with that literature still are using triune brain-ish type uh, interpretation. So every time you hear that your prefrontal cortex regulates your amygdala, yeah, right there, that's just, that's a sign that that person is making an assumption about the triune brain. Sometimes scientists who write for the public will rely on that, you know, three-layered structure idea, the sort of lizard, limbic, you know, neocortex, because they understand that it's easier for the public to, to think that way. So for example, yeah, Robert Sapolsky in his book, Behave, talks about the limbic system and he knows there's no limbic system and he knows that that's, you know, uh, a myth, but, but he uses it because it's easier for people to it's an easier platform for people to start with so that he can get to the material he wants them to get to. Whereas I'm directly more concerned with that material of like, what is a brain? How is it structured? And why do you need to know? Yeah. And when you, and you made it so easy. I mean, I, I don't know if you like that people have said this, but um, people are calling it like a, a beach read about the brain, which I think is you know, their way of saying it's digestible and, and fun to read. It's I, not, well, I wrote it that, I mean, I read Yeah, it you wrote it on purpose. Okay, yeah, like yeah. that way. Because, um, it, but it is so brilliant that you've just blown my mind. I mean, I'm I'm your biggest fan. I think you're a genius. And um, thank you so much, Dr. Barrett, for chatting with us today. And I, I hope you've blown minds, changed minds, helped people. And uh, I, I'm going to change this podcast now to Uncomfortable Arousal, Bites, not anxiety. (laughs) 
It doesn't have the same kind of like lyrical ring to it. No, but we'll get people there. But thank you again for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you loved my talk with Dr. Lisa. Let's just go over some of the bigger takeaways from my talk with her. Anxiety is a very misunderstood phenomena, so don't worry if you don't fully understand it. The brain is for regulating systems of your body, period. The function of your brain is to continue to predict so that it keeps you safe. When it's having trouble predicting, when it's not quite there yet, it hasn't come to its full conclusion, that's when there's an increase in arousal, which, as Dr. Lisa says, feels like shit. But if you learn to make sense of these sensations when your brain is in arousal, you will begin to act differently and the state is reduced to simply an uncomfortable state. It is an absolute myth dating back to Plato that rationality controls your inner beast and if your inner beast gets the better of you, you're either immoral or you didn't try hard enough to control yourself. Suffering from anxiety and anxious sensations is not obligatory. Now, you're not to blame for the bad things that have happened to you or for any of the wiring or nurture that you got that caused you to have, you know, the habit of anxiety, but you are responsible for yourself. So unfortunately, you have no choice if you want to get better. You do have to make a choice to work on this. Your brain has to teach itself to see differently, and that's called reappraisal or reconceptualizing. It's basically just making sense of things in a different way. Don't forget, there's lots of things you can do for anxiety. Like you can do yoga, you can breathe, but don't just follow what someone else says works for them for their anxiety. You have to also understand the brain and the mind. And if you don't understand how that works, what's going on under the hood, then you're going to be stuck with strategies that eventually stop working in certain circumstances. And you'll think, God, I've tried everything. It doesn't work. Now, having a list of tools for anxiety, like yoga, meditation, breathing, talk therapy, counting, is not a recipe. Think of it more as a tasting menu. You're going to, you're, what word was that? You're going to, you're going to figure out what works for you and what doesn't in certain situations. Okay, so what does it mean to have something work? Don't forget. What Dr. Lisa said, it means decreasing your arousal so that you're merely uncomfortable. I'm sorry, we're not really able to get rid of uncomfortable feelings. But I think you'll know once you get to that level, it's a hell of a lot better than anxious feelings. Now, it's really hard for the first time to, um, you know, deconstruct your anxiety, your first attempt at it. It may still go into unpleasant arousal, but as Dr. Lisa says, maybe by the 30th time you do it, you'll get there. It becomes automatic. Now, don't forget, every experience you have is the brain training itself for the future. So it really behooves you to keep trying to deconstruct your anxiety from arousal, unpleasant arousal, to uncomfortable. And we have the kind of nature that does require nurture. So we have the kind of genes that require learning in order for your brain to finish wiring itself. You can rewire your brain. Well, that's it. I'm going to get busy rewiring my brain, and I hope that you will all join me next time 
Don't forget, anxiety bites, but you're in control. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.